The Defense Department is establishing stronger ties with colleges and universities focused on a single urgent issue. It's called the University Consortium for Cybersecurity, or UC2. Here with who's involved, how it works, and what its goals are, the program manager, Ian Crone. Mr. Crone, good to have you on. Thank you. Uh, great to be here. And tell us where this consortium lives within the DOD panoply here. It's part of NDU, National Defense University? That's correct. So this consortium responds to congressional direction from the FY19 National Defense Authorization Act, Section 1659, which our colleagues in Congress looked across the department and recognized a challenge, which is that there are many folks across the department working with the universities, but we could really step up our level of collaboration. And so the UC2, or University Consortium for Cybersecurity, responds to that direction. UC2 is organized out of the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, but has a wide range of stakeholders, and the National Defense University's College of Information and Cyberspace is the executive chair for that consortium and will be acting kind of as the administrative hub for the consortium's activities moving forward. So Congress ordered this into existence, I think it was last year's NDAA, is that correct? It was two years ago, yeah. It took us a while to get organized, but Congress directed us to figure out a way ahead, and the consortium is how we are organizing to respond to that challenge. Uh, They also clarified some of those roles and responsibilities in this past year's FY22 NDAA. Well, two years from an NDAA to actuality is actually not bad. That's, That's better than a lot of the programs go. And tell us what the goals are here. What are you trying to accomplish? This is, I think, really kind of twofold. One, how do we present a better face to the wide range of colleges and universities that work all across the country on a wide range of cybersecurity topics? You know, the department's a huge place. How do we better consolidate kind of some of the key challenges, technology gaps, and other key issues that the department sees to the universities so that we can really bring the brightest minds from across the country to bear on those hard problems? That's one area. I'll say the other that I certainly would say is just as important is how can the Department of Defense be a better customer to and partner with those universities? You know, it's always a challenge for colleges and universities and really for the entire defense industrial base to work with the department. We don't always make it easy. And so something that I'm really excited to work on is how can we be a better partner for these colleges and universities? And that may come in the form of reviewing or reforming policy or recommending changes to, you know, any number of different areas that could really just make it easier for the whole country to be involved in working on the hardest problems that we have. And there's an element of bringing in the historically black colleges and universities and also the historically underserved universities. That's part of this program, too, as well, correct? Yeah, there's no question. For the initial year, we're partnering closely with the National Security Agency's National Centers of Academic Excellence for Cybersecurity, NCAEC program. So the initial cadre of schools, which is about 350 schools that are part of this first year's efforts, are the schools that we're putting RFIs out to. And that list includes a large number of historically black colleges and universities, as well as a number of other minority-serving institutions. And I think that's a key aspect of that idea of bringing the whole country to bear on some of the key challenges that the department faces today. We're speaking with Ian Crone. He's acting principal director for Cyber in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. And in the kickoff of this, that undersecretary, Heidi Shu, had quite a bit to contribute to, I understand. She absolutely did. Honorable Shu is a real champion for many of the same goals that the consortium serves and delivered some really, I think, inspiring remarks that reminded us both of the strategic direction that the department and the country are taking as a whole and some of our responsibility to be both champions and key stakeholders for these key issues. 
So the collaboration then extends beyond the professors and academics themselves at these institutions, but also some of the students? Yes, absolutely. It's easy to think just of professors, but that's where the work gets done, and and that's also going to be the next generation of leaders and doers across the whole country. So trying to figure out how we get a a wider range of students working on, aware of some of the, the opportunities, the challenges that the department faces. We're facing some really tough problems right now, and I'll even reiterate and say the next generation, whether that's in uniform, civilians, contractors, that are going to be key to the department's challenges, those folks are getting educated in the colleges and universities today and in the future. And if the department doesn't have a great partnership with those colleges and universities that reaches down to the student level, we're not doing our jobs. And there's a program across government of some years running. It's called the Temporary Assignment Program or the Personnel Mobility Program, where people from academia can actually become temporary or assigned federal employees. Is that part of this, or is it everybody works for their own institution and just collaborate? That's not something that we've folded into this activity yet. You know, there's the IPA program. There's a number of these programs today. I think the thing that you're getting at, which is a key point, is the department has a large number of these different programs, many of them long-running. One of the things that I know is a priority for me is just to wrap our arms around and consolidate from the department's perspective what those programs are, what the opportunities look like so that we can do a better job providing even just the information on those programs to both folks within the department and the colleges and university partners. A lot of times it's hard to even know what the opportunity space looks like, and we need to do a better job at that. And how do you expect the program to operate then? That is, will different colleges work on different particular pieces of cybersecurity, and are you giving them grants to work on things? How does it operate? The initial way that we're running this, and I'll say initial because we've only just started, through our NCAEC partner with the NSA, we issued an RFI, Request for Information, this past fall on two key technology topics looking at things like human-machine teaming and modeling and simulation capability that we know are hard problems for the department and really looking for innovative work going on out in the the colleges and universities that we might not already be aware of. So we're going to get those responses back early this year. We have a team of folks that's going to go through those and grade them and then hold a workshop to bring in key department stakeholders so they can hear more about that key work that's going on. We expect that that RFI process will evolve over time as we learn more about kind of the colleges and their interests, their priorities, the stakeholders' interests and priorities. I expect that we'll start doing RFIs that are more focused on those process and policy questions in addition to the pure technology questions. Right now, these are not grants. We're not offering funding as a result, so it's not a BAA or an RFP process. That's something that we're certainly exploring and looking at in the future is if we need to evolve to that basis. But for right now, we're definitely offering, you know, for those key technologies that we're identifying, if there's great ideas, you know, going on out there in the community, we'd love to connect the folks with those ideas and those technologies with potential partners from across the department. And what are some of the very top of list technologies and procedures you want to explore first? Yeah, the first RFI that we issued, I'll say that the two keys that we identified were human-machine teaming. So there's no question that autonomy and AI as a department priority, you know, the deputy secretary has certainly highlighted that. And, you know, there's no question that those technologies are going to be key for every area of the department. But I think, you know, for cyber in particular, the scale and speed of the challenge is really going to demand the use of autonomous capabilities. But those autonomous capabilities have to be partnered with, you know, the operators, with the analysts, with the humans that are going to be operating those systems. So looking at key questions about autonomy and trust and then the relationship between the humans and the machines, how can we best optimize both partners? And the other key area that we looked at was looking at 
high-fidelity modeling and simulation. So there are a variety of tools out there for cyber modeling and simulation, looking at how do you emulate something like a computer network. There are other models out there for things like physical processes, so think industrial control systems or SCADA equipment. But really, the problems of the future are going to demand that we have the ability to jointly reason over both physical processes and network processes. And that's bluntly a really hard problem, and we're looking for innovative solutions that are going to enable us to defend our networks and understand our vulnerabilities and then get after the key problems in a more scalable and robust way. And really, when you look at, say, a question like human machine learning and teaming and autonomy, That applies in a lot of DOD domains, even outside of cybersecurity. It absolutely does. And there's there's robust activity going on to explore that space across the department. But absolutely, we're also excited to hear about technologies that may be being developed for non-cyber purposes, but that might have applicability to cyber. As you say, it's a deeply interconnected subject area. And one of the things that I think is really great about universities and colleges is a lot of times there's work going on in another department that maybe folks would be knowledgeable about, but that, you know, we just bluntly looking through our soda straw of cyber might not be. And so looking to those colleges and universities to start form those connections and start thinking about things in a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary way to bring those forward, I think that's going to be a key area for us going forward. Ian Crone is Acting Principal Director for Cyber in the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses, and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job. And then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Celebrate this holiday season by sending money to your loved ones with Western Union. As a new customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee when you send money online. For fast and reliable money transfers, use Western Union. Visit westernunion.com or download our app today to get started and your first transfer fee is on us. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983, or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985, FX Gain Supply.